Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You may be familiar with writer Nicole Chong's first book, All You Can Ever Know, that chronicled her search for her birth family as a Korean adoptee to white parents. In her new memoir called A Living Remedy, Chong focuses on her adoptive parents who died recently, burdened by healthcare costs to their final days. Sickness and grief throw wealthy and poor families alike into upheaval, Chung writes, but they do not transcend the gulfs between us, as some claim. If anything, they often magnify them. We'll look at how class and adoption can complicate grief after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Writer Nicole Chung recently lost both her parents within two years of each other. They were in their 60s. Her father struggled with diabetes and kidney failure. Her mother was diagnosed with cancer. In a new memoir, Chung examines their deaths and her grief, which were complicated by health care costs and the financial burdens that plagued her parents to the end. Chung also explores what it means to lose your parents as an adoptee, to lose the people who chose you. Her new memoir is called A Living Remedy, and Nicole Chung joins me now. Welcome back to Forum, Nicole. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Really glad to have you. There are so many striking reflections on how being adopted figures into your grief. And at one point, you even say it's like being unadopted when the last parent dies. It's often described as feeling unmoored. I'm wondering if part of what you're getting at with unadopted is similar to that feeling. I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, honestly, that I would use the term today um, after reflection, but it was a, a term, like a word that felt very true and emotionally honest at the time I said it, which was you know, right after my adoptive mother passed away. Um, she, I mean, of course, that would have been devastating anyway. She was also um, the third close adoptive family member I'd lost in two years and really like the last, my last link to that family in many ways. Um, I think when I used the term unadopted and I was talking to uh, a cousin on that side of the family, you know, it just, I was reflecting on the fact that like, what does it mean even to be adopted into a family and then to have everybody gone? I'm still an adoptee and I always will be. And that is my formative life experience and what set my entire life on the path that it's on, right? But the people who made that decision, um, who love me are gone. And it's something that I've kind of continued to grapple with. Um, and I have to say, it surprised me a bit. I wasn't expecting my adoption feelings and losses to come up so much in my grief for my parents. Um, but it was something I experienced with both of them in very different ways. Yeah, you, you talk about getting tripped up a bit on the prayer for a deceased parent and the line 
that says all my relatives according to the flesh. And it's interesting, interesting because both your parents were religious. Um, mm -hmm. but, but can you talk a little bit about what tripped you up about that? Sure. I mean, I should explain too, this is my mother's prayer book, uh, which yes. came to me after she passed away. Um, a friend of her sent it to me. My mother was very devout, but both my parents were, but my mother especially. And I have these vivid memories of her, you know, reading, reciting prayers from that book, um, especially in the last months of her life when I was, uh, until the pandemic, trying to spend even more time with her. And there was, there was actually, I, I randomly opened to this page toward the middle and there was something called the prayer for a deceased parent. Um, and I wondered if the book kind of fell open there in part because it was a prayer she said for her, her father and mother who, who she'd also lost. Um, and yeah, that I, I started to kind of read it just to familiarize myself with it. And there was this, this line, this phrase, uh, my relatives, according to the flesh. And um, it did, it tripped me up a bit because of course, my parents and I, uh, I'm not, I'm not of their flesh. I'm not biologically related to them. It reminded me of this moment after my father passed away when uh, someone, I was, I was letting her know that my family would be traveling for the funeral and we would miss an event that we planned to go to at her, her house. And she was expressing her sympathy and saying very kindly, you know, you'll, you'll see your father live on in your children. Um, and mm -hmm. that, that was a similar moment, right? Of like, it's the kind of thing you say often when, when someone experiences a loss. In many cases, it's true. Um, but it wasn't true in my case with my children, um, you know, just because again, like, like me, they don't have that biological link to my family. Um, so it was, it was just kind of like, it caused me to reflect on the things we say often, um, when people do lose somebody and, you know, the ways in which they may not necessarily apply if you're, if your family's different or if, if you are adopted, like I am. Yeah. And again, didn't expect Nicole to have the fact that your children don't have a genetic connection to your parents that you didn't expect it to affect you as much as it ultimately did. I wouldn't say the fact that they don't have that connection. Um, it's not like it bothers me or I think about it often. It was just sort of in that moment, I think when I was grieving for my father and accepting sympathies from somebody um, or grieving my mother and, and reading from her prayer book and seeing that phrase. Um, just like, of course I can, I can and I do sort of edit uh, according to like my own family circumstances, but it was interesting to me. And it just brought up the fact that um, it's true. Like there, there aren't many people now, uh, not people I'm close to where I can look and see this uh, the physical resemblance to my parents, you know, that's not obviously something I see when I look in the mirror or when I see my children, but that doesn't mean that like their love doesn't live on. It doesn't mean that what they passed on to me and it doesn't live on in, in both me and my children. It's just, it's a different type of legacy. Yeah. Do you think it ever affected your parents? You write at one point, um, they were never going to see glimpses of themselves and me or my children. When my father was alive, I know he sometimes struggled to see himself in me too. We were very different people, I think, which is what that line was really getting at. But um, no, I think when my parents made the decision to adopt, um, you know, and they were open to a child of any background, um, I think that they had already decided that wasn't an important part of parenthood for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was they liked, they, I mean, they always like to say it was just kind of a ridiculous line, but, you know, 
it didn't matter to us like what you looked like at all. You could have been Asian or black or white or like purple with polka dots, which is again, kind of like ridiculous, but I know the point they were trying to make, which is just that their parenthood did not, like their sense of identity as my parents did not in any way depend on us physically resembling each other. And their love for me wasn't dependent on us being very alike in other ways, but it was still kind of, I think, a source of puzzlement at times <laughs> to my parents that just like the many, many ways in which like I did not remind them of themselves or anybody in the family. Yeah. I, I do want to read this one uh, section in your book that I was really moved by that I think got at some of the initial feelings of being unadopted. You write still when what ties you to one another is not blood or birth or even mutual choice, but a piece of paper and a proclamation that you are family when you haven't always belonged to one another and can imagine countless scenarios in which you would have remained strangers never to meet. Is there more vulnerability, perhaps more to fear when some emotional or physical distance opens up between you, when you fight and those bonds are pulled and tested, when one of you is gone forever? That's from Nicole Chung's memoir, A Living Remedy, about the death of her parents, the interconnections of grief with adoption and also with class. And uh, you may know Nicole from her 2018 memoir, All You Can Ever Know. She's also a contributor to the Atlantic Time and Slate, and she writes for many other publications. If you want to join the conversation, you can at 866-733-6786. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email forum at kqed.org. What has the loss of a parent taught you? Has your experience of grief been affected by being adopted or even by by financial hardship, which we'll get into more? But first, Nicole, I do want to ask you, you said that you and your dad were not alike at all. What was your dad like? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, the biggest difference is that whenever I wanted to be serious, and I think I've always been a rather serious person. I was a pretty serious child, very <laughs> watchful, very observant. Um, he always wanted to make jokes. So uh, that's like my strongest memory of my father is like joking with everyone, but in this very dry, almost deadpan way that sometimes strangers would mistake for seriousness. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's like one of the main things uh, with my first book, which he got to read most of before he passed away in 2018. Um, he was largely happy with his portrayal because one of his jokes stayed in the book. Um, his <laughs> His favorite line when people asked where my parents got me was, oh, if you put like a Pole and a Hungarian together, those were my parents, uh, you know, primary backgrounds, family backgrounds. Um, you get a Korean, where do you think they came from? And it's again, ridiculous, but this is the kind of thing he would say, I think, to sort of gently let people know they were being nosy. <laughs> uh, like ask a silly question, get a silly answer. But that was my father, like through and through. What was your mom like? Oh gosh. Um, I remember her actually as the first storyteller in the family. And in fact, a lot of the anecdotes in this book, you know, even the ones about my father's childhood, like those came to me through my mom. She could tell even really like painful stories and like relive even hard memories with this like streak of humor. Uh, she, I think she recognized the hard things in life um, and her own losses, but just had like such a a fighting spirit and was generally ready to be amused by by even the smallest like quirkiest quirkiest thing um and she was as i mentioned very devout um she was very proud she was 
a really compassionate person. And what I remember most about her as a parent is just this like rock solid faith in me, almost to a fault. Not that she didn't think I could do anything wrong. It's just maybe she would think it was justified if I did. <laughs> um, and it was really, I think this, this just unquestionable like love and belief in me. I, I think of it as the foundation of my life still. I think her faith in me made me braver than I would have been otherwise. I think she helped me trust myself more because she trusted me. Um, it was like a real gift. And that was just the kind of parent that she was. We're about to come up on a break, but while your mom was able to share hard stories about other people, she largely she largely hid any hard stories about her from from you. Yeah, if um well I think especially when um when my father's health was declining and I was living across the country. Um, you know, I know this is a, an experience that's common to so many people, but I I would try to get information from from both of them, but often from my mother, because she was the one um you know, who was relaying information to me. And there were definitely things I heard late, uh, later than I thought I should have. I think it was just hard because they were trying to protect me. Yeah. We'll have more with Nicole Chung, more about her new memoir, Living Remedy, more about her adoptive parents after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Right on the, Nicole, Nicole Chung's first memoir, All You Can Ever Know, chronicled her search for her birth family. Her second, called A Living Remedy, focuses on her final years with her adoptive parents. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. Nicole Chung's parents died within two years of each other before they reached their 70th birthdays. And if you lost a parent, what would you like to share about what the loss of a parent taught you Perhaps your experience of grief was affected by being adopted. Perhaps it was affected by financial hardship. If so, and if you have thoughts you'd like to share, you can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You could call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. 
And a listener comments on Instagram, this book is so good. Reading it now. Again, the memoir is a living remedy. Um, Nicole, before the break, we were talking about how your parents tried to protect you by not sharing their financial hardships, their health burdens. I actually wanted to to start with the financial burdens for a moment because I was so struck um, by your description of not really recognizing the extent of the financial burdens and not even realizing you were quote-unquote poor even when someone tried to characterize you that way um, until you went to college. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and the process of realizing the depth of their financial difficulties? I think like a lot of American, like working class families, um, my family growing up was able often to get by. I remember being pretty young when my mother first used the term paycheck to paycheck with me, Um, but she didn't say it in a way that alarmed me. She just, the way she presented it was we had a strict budget. Um, We had like just enough. We were getting by. And I think that was true for many, many years. My parents' financial situation began to worsen when I was in high school. Um, So my freshman year of high school, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she was only a few weeks out from her surgery for that uh, for that diagnosis when my father lost his job. And then um, not long after that, my mother's company reorganized and laid her off. So when they experienced other medical issues in the following years, we were uninsured uh, as we often were when I was younger as well. And that led to just mounting medical debt. When I say I wasn't aware of the extent of it, I mean, that's because I was still a child, their child, um, getting older, but I was not like welcomed into family budgeting discussions. You know, I was like so many kids, I think picking up hints here and there, you know, I might overhear a conversation in which they sounded stressed about money. Or as I got older, I began to notice, oh, I'm I'm working and I'm paying for things that I guess a lot of my peers' parents are paying for for them. Like, for example, I I paid for like all of my own lunches at school and I paid for like my clothes and my shoes, my college application fees, that sort of thing. Um, But I was also really sheltered, I think, and protected by my parents in a lot of ways. They were really trying to keep this from affecting me more than it already was, I suppose. Um, And so I wanted to write about that in the book because it's actually interesting to me. And I think it's how a lot of us learn about money, about our family finances, about our family's situation in the world. It's not really through what we are told explicitly. It's through what we can um, infer and and deduce based on what we observe around us. Um, It was only many years later, for example, that I looked back at my first FAFSA and um, I, right. And I I realized just how low our family income was at the time I graduated from high school. Um, You know, of course I knew money was tight, but I didn't know much more than that. And that was something that I sort of grew increasingly aware of, you know, moving into adulthood. Um, and, and again, something, you know, when things like you are part of a gift exchange at college and your friends say, okay, the minimum is $50. Yeah. I think the suggested spending amount. And I was just like, I've never spent $50 on a gift for anybody. Um, at that point in the semester, it was probably about what I had in my checking account, you know? Um, so I think, right. Those, those differences, those class differences were certainly more obvious to me in college than they had been in high school. Um, But my family situation was also kind of slowly worsening, like not getting better, which again, 
is the case for for so many families. Um, and as I got older, you know, I just became more aware because things were getting harder for them. Yeah. When you tried to ask them about their health, how would they frequently respond? Um, it, it varied. My father would give a quick answer. He'd say fine, or he'd say I'm a little tired or his standard, like his go-to was, oh, I'm doing so wonderful. You wish you were me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my mother, it, it depended. It depended honestly on how overwhelmed she was feeling. Sometimes I think if she were really, was very stressed, she would kind of shut down, which, which is understandable. Other times, um, I, I got the feeling she had been sort of holding things in and I would get a lot of like pent up frustration and fear. Um, and of course, like I saw, I could observe, right, how they were doing when I went home or when they came to see us. But there was a country between us. Um, it was a time in my life when I didn't have a lot of extra income or vacation. So I, I tried to see them as often as I could, but it was never often enough for me to feel as though um, I had a real handle on like their day to day. So that was very difficult. Yeah. Annie writes on Instagram, my mom had a large lump on the side of her neck for nearly a decade. We were always telling her to get it checked, but after a while we gave up. She died of undiagnosed cancer on May 2nd, 2022, at the age of 65. It spread throughout her body, including her bones and abdominal organs. It ate her alive. I learned that I should have kept pestering. I learned that she was the backbone of our family. Without her, everyone is lost. We just keep going on as shells of our former selves. Oh, Annie, I'm so sorry for that loss. I can't help but hear some of the striking similarities of Annie's mom's death and, and your mother's, um, Nicole. Yeah, my mother, um, it, was, it was interesting because my father's death was really sped by, I think, a lack of access to healthcare um, for many, many years. Um, he had diabetes and he had kidney disease. And by the time like the last part of the safety net that really caught him was at a federally qualified health center where he was finally diagnosed with late stage renal failure. Um, And by then there had been so much damage done. Like he just never really could recover from that. My mother's death from cancer, when it came back, um, it was like swift and merciless. She was in a different situation because she had just qualified uh, due to age for like Social Security and Medicare. And so unlike with my father, there were just certain worries that we didn't have. Um, you know, she was able to access medical care. I will say that the home health care she needed was incredibly expensive and, of course, not covered by insurance. And so that was one of just many things that we were both trying to um, trying to, to deal with in, in her final months. But um no, I mean, I think I think a lot about how many people are in this situation. You know, people in this country spend more money on medical coverage per capita than just about anywhere else. And yet, you know, many people still don't have enough coverage. They struggle to navigate this enormous healthcare bureaucracy and they still don't get the care they need. Yeah. You wanted to read a little bit from A Living Remedy. Do you want to share with us what you selected? Yes, it's um, it's a short passage from chapter eight, and this was this chapter really deals with the circumstances of my father's death and um, and what I spoke of just now about how it was sped by you know years of financial precarity and inaccessible health care. Um, many weeks later, a friend calls it 
a common American death. We're in her car, on our way to dinner, speaking of various conditions that run in our families. Both of us have seen our loved one's health problems exacerbated by financial insecurity, inaccessible medical care. She says that what happened to my father was tragic, and we talk about how it might have been prevented if he'd gotten the help he needed. How many people here, she says, die for the exact same reason every day? I think of how many times I've heard terminal illness and death referred to as equalizers, as if they can flatten our differences and disparities simply because they come for all of us sooner or later. Sickness and grief throw wealthy and poor families alike into upheaval, but they do not transcend the gulfs between us. If anything, they often magnify them. Who has the ability to make choices others lack? Who's left to scramble for piecemeal solutions in an emergency? If you have no rainy day savings or paid medical leave, if your support system is scant or under-resourced, if preventative or life-saving treatments harder for you to access are altogether out of reach, you'll have a profoundly different experience from those who become seriously ill or find themselves caring for sick or dying loved ones, knowing that if nothing else, they can afford to meet the moment. This is a country that takes little responsibility for the health and well-being of its citizens while urging us to blame each other and ourselves for our precarity under an exploitative system in which all but a small number of us stand to suffer or lose much. That's Nicole Chung reading from her memoir, A Living Remedy. There are a couple of things in that passage that are really jumping out to me. I know in reading your book that you blamed yourself sometimes, or you felt a great deal of guilt around your parents' death. But then at one point, you also say that self-blame is also partly by design by this country. What did you mean Mm -hmm. by that? I mean, with my father, it was very hard to come to terms with all that I couldn't do for him, um, just given where I was in life and being part of that sandwich generation that that you hear about where you're both trying to care for sick or aging elders and also raising your own young children. But as an only child, especially, I did grow up thinking of my parents' future needs and care as my responsibility, you know, like part of what I owed them as their child. I think a lot of people feel this way. And that might work for some if you're privileged enough, wealthy enough, live or can move near your parents, don't need to work all the time, don't have children with significant needs of their own, and you all have health coverage. But even then, it's hard and it's expensive. Long-term care, we're in a crisis in this country. And it all takes time and energy and the kind of planning that's just really hard because you don't know the future. And so I thought, I was thinking a lot after my father's death about how both my mother and I wanted to be able to do more for him. Ultimately, like that's what happens. We leave people without the resources and the support they need and we make them feel it's all on you. You know, you have to somehow manage, provide and pay for your loved one's care. And we say this even when the, like the need it outstrips their capacity. So one of the things I, I, I did want to grapple with in the book is just there's this focus on personal obligation or responsibility that we do have to each other. But it doesn't really acknowledge the reality of these systems. Um, you know, the fact that we are not individually responsible for structural failings, for the systems that failed my parents, that fail so many. Um, 
You know, my father's loss was tragic and it was unfair, but it was also one of too many like it in this country. Yeah, a common American death. At one point you describe your mom selling her plasma to be able to address the financial gaps, the, the health care costs and so on. It underscores that a lot. Right. I mean, this was after they had applied or tried to research pretty much every form of available assistance. So, I mean, I do want to stress it was not just the healthcare system or a lack of insurance that really failed my father, failed my parents. You know, they were not eligible for things like food and rental assistance. They were denied Medicaid, uh, the Oregon Health Plan, um, despite being unemployed and my father being very sick. My father was denied disability benefits, as many people are the first time. Um, and so, you know, my mother, she did. She ended up selling plasma. And for, for many months, it was, I mean, their primary income. Um, and it's, of course, still wasn't enough to meet their needs or to pay for all of my father's prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what we do in this country as well. You know, we assistance benefits, they're rationed, they're means tested, the rules and accessibility vary so much depending on where you live. And in the meantime, people get sicker and they get poorer and we they don't get the help that they need. Um, and somehow, sometimes they're led to believe it's somehow their fault. They weren't deserving or they weren't working or they weren't trying hard enough. Let me go to caller Brandon in Foster City. Brandon, you're on. Good morning, everyone. Um, I also lost my mother to, you know, it was cancer, but really it was not having... Uh, they feared the cost of insurance, you know, the cost of getting screened and seeing, you know, any, everybody fears going to the doctor because we're petrified about these horrific bills that are just famous for getting. And I just wish to use the tiny bit of time that I have to just let people know, vote for politicians and policy, specifically policy. Don't get behind people, get behind policy that advocates uh, insurance-free health care. The problem is really the insurance companies. They collect premiums. They do not render care. All they figure out is how to deny and delay claims. They add the cost. And and a lot of times, it's not about having... We don't want Brandon? insurance. Yeah, I think your your connection is... We're losing you a little bit there, but thank you for that point. I think it came through loud and clear before it got a little crackly. Nicole, I don't know if you have a reaction to that, but it's making me think about, you talk about some of the anger that you felt at the same realizations that I think Brandon is bringing up. How did the financial burdens, the health burdens, how did they affect your process of grieving your parents? I mean, telling the story of my family and my grief in this book ultimately meant really naming and confronting these things and, you know, these injustices, which are heartbreakingly common. Um, And I knew it was something I wanted to do in part because I hadn't read many stories of personal grief that really took that head on. And yet I know it's a factor for so many people in this country who have experienced loss uh, or who've experienced illness. You know, most of us are not fantastically wealthy. And so we tend to meet these crises without all the resources we need. But in terms of my actual grieving, you know, I expected to be angry. Actually, everyone talks about the stages of grief, right? And and I knew that anger was often part of that. Um, and I had to really give myself permission, though, to be angry in my grief for both my parents, while at the same time, you know, not blaming myself or them for things we couldn't change. Um, it's hard because I do have rage with the systems that failed them. 
And I did find I could channel some of that into my writing and I could process that as part of my grief. But I had to do that in kind of an intentional way. You know, I had to know what that anger was in service of, especially if I was going to write about it in a way that would actually reach readers and bring them along. Um, I just know that like, even if we don't have all the support we need and these systems are failing people, I still feel really strongly, you know, we have to try to take care of each other. It's a privilege. It can even be a source of, of joy, um, which is what my family always tried to do in spite of what we were up against. And so it's also important to me to note, I don't see our story as one of grief only or an American tragedy. I see it as a story, again, a common one about struggle and resistance and, and love as well. Yeah. Well, the listener tweets, my mom died when I was 21. I was fortunate that my mother-in-law became a substitute mom for me, someone who accepted me. She was also an adoptee who found her birth parents. She was able to be with her adopted parents as well as birth mom during their journeys toward death. We're talking with Nicole Chung about the interconnections of grief and class, the interconnections of grief and adoption. Her new memoir, A Living Remedy, documents her final years with her parents. And you, our listeners, can join with how the loss of a parent has affected you and if maybe adoption or financial hardship also shape the contours of, of your grief experience. Forum's email address is forum at kqed.org. You can find us at KQED Forum on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. You can call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Nicole Chung about her new memoir, A Living Remedy, which documents the lives her adoptive parents led. And you, our listener, to joining the conversation. What has the loss of a parent taught you? Do you have an experience of grieving that you would like to share that may have been shaped by systemic issues like financial hardship? Maybe it was shaped by adoption. Nicole Chung is an adoptee. This listener writes, My mom was a single parent who raised six kids on her own in the 50s and 60s when a divorced woman had no rights because my dad left the country rather than paying child support or alimony. I remember being so worried that we wouldn't be able to pay property tax, even though I didn't know what that was. Um, Nicole, 
before the break, you were talking about how you were thinking about your grief and what it was in service to. And I couldn't help think about, wow, what is it like to be writing through grief for a public audience? Essentially, um, you know, in between your father's death, your mother dying, um, and how did that shape the way that you approach the story and did it change over the course of it? Uh, this book, yes, completely changed. I actually had sold it before my mother died, even before she received a terminal cancer diagnosis. And so I imagined at the time that I would be writing a story focused on our grief for my father and mm -hmm. the injustice of when and how we lost him. And that my mother would be here to talk with me about it and would read it and I would be consulting her along the way. Um, so I did not expect to be writing about losing both my adoptive parents in a two year span. But um, after she was diagnosed, uh, I put the manuscript down. You know, obviously I was, I was very focused on her and on her care and on my own family. And, um, and then she started hospice care actually just around the time um, that the first coronavirus cases were really being reported in the US. And so my last visit to see her was supposed to be um, in the spring of 2020, and that was a visit that didn't happen. So everything changed. It's, but in a way, it feels like trite to say my life changed because the entire world had changed. And I, I had stopped working on the book. There were times I did not know if I would ever be able to get back to it. It was just honestly very painful to think about. Um, so I probably started writing again in earnest about six months after she died. Um, and at that point I knew it had to be reimagined entirely. So I started over from the beginning and what I had figured out, I suppose, partly in my grief was that my relationship with my mother was going to be the foundation of this book. You know, that's what would give it its, its arc and its movement. And so when I started the book over, I knew, okay, we start with her and me and, and ultimately that's where we ended as well. Um, but you know, I, it was so different than writing All You Can Ever Know. My first book, I was writing about events that I thought of as very settled um, when I wrote about my search for my birth family. You know, that search was over. I knew how it ended. And with A Living Remedy, it was very, I mean, it was so daunting just from a craft perspective. How do you write a book about your personal grief that will matter to readers, that will make them think about like their own experiences, their own lives and their loved ones and their losses? Um, because a book can't just be for you, right? It's not just catharsis. And then, um, you know, could I write a book about grief that would matter or even help other people? It, it really felt like a leap. Um, but I eventually got to a point where I, I really did feel a sort of wonder and curiosity about this story, even though it was hard to write, writing about grief in real time. Um, and I, I just believed very strongly that it was a story I needed to tell and it was one that might help other people in, if they were grieving, as, as nearly everybody I knew was um, and has been for the past few years with this pandemic. Um, but it was, it was a very scary process because this book demanded so much of me. And um, I think in the end, I kind of just had to trust myself and trust the story. And I, I was lucky. I was lucky that that, that worked because, because I wasn't sure it would. I felt... <laughs> this deep sense of freedom writing this book eventually, once I finally got back into it, it was just, um, 
I don't know. I think it's because I had been patient with myself and I mm. had had learned to show myself more care and, and more trust in my writing. Well, let me go to caller Misa in Berkeley. Hi, Misa. Thanks for calling. Hi, thank you. Um, I lost my sister in March uh, to colon cancer, and uh, she was a tenured professor at a well-known college, and they um, had her resign um, in the last year of her life. So she lost her health insurance um, in the last months of her life. And I was wondering where you put the rage when you are um, also dealing with grief um, against the system that is kind of um, designed to have you lose your insurance at the moment you most need it. Oh, Misa, I'm Thank so sorry. Taking my question. I'm so sorry. Thank you for sharing that story. And, and just the way you put it, where do you put the rage, uh, Nicole? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I mean, I'm so sorry for your loss and also for, for what happened um, to her. That's I mean, it's horrific and it's just, it's hard. I mean, I do have real rage and I think I always will with with these systems that fail, failed my parents, failed, failed the people we love. Um, and it's hard. People have asked like, well, was writing about it helpful? Was that therapeutic? Um, writing for me is generally not therapeutic, hmm. uh, particularly if I'm writing for public consumption. But I mean, there is a way that you can, I found that I can channel some of that into my writing and my work. Um, and like, I don't know, again, I think about like, well, what, given that they're gone now and in the end, I could not change that. You know, I wasn't able to save my father, especially. Um, I guess like, what am I, what, what purpose is this anger serving in, in my life? Given that I'm the one who's, who's here and who's left dealing with this. And I guess in the case of um, of just thinking about these systems, like what I think recognizing that it's not your fault, that what happened wasn't your fault and learning not to blame yourself is big. I think I think also doing what you can to try to help other people who are um, going through similar things or different things, but ultimately being failed by the same systems. But it's mm -hmm. hard. It's just, it, I think it's one thing that, I'm not over and will never be over. It's just something that I've had to incorporate into my grieving process. Um, I've had to learn how to how to be with that and how to live with it. But I know it's really, really hard. Um, it, you know, and it, 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 it's a process. It takes time. Yeah. The, the, the title of your memoir, A Living mm -hmm. Remedy, it comes from a poem by Marie Howe from th the poem for three days. It's also mm -hmm. informed by the poem, What the Living Do. Um, but what does a living remedy mean to you? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I love talking about that poem and how I had actually, so I've loved Marie Howe's work for years. Um, and I I mean, I've had What the Living Do, her beautiful collection for, for ages. And I had written everything but the title of this book and I was really stuck. Uh, and I, I did what I often do, which is just turn to poetry for inspiration. So I was rereading a lot of poetry. Um, and this phrase, a living remedy, leapt out at me from her poem for three days. The line was, because even grief provides a living remedy. And I loved it. I loved that it was, I mean, I loved that life was in the title. Um, I didn't want a title that, that was about death, even though it is very much a story of grief. Um, I, I liked that it felt forward-looking, but but not in a way that simplifies um, 
grief or tries to turn it into something that has a neat or tidy ending, just that grief changes. The way you feel changes over time because um, it always does. And so what are you left with? Is there is there showing you like some other way to move forward without moving past grief? Because I don't believe we really do. Um, that's why I love that phrase and why it leapt out at me. And I think grief can be a remedy in some cases because I've experienced loss where I blamed myself, where I was focused on anger, yes, but it was like directed toward me. There were months after my father died where I know I was like punishing myself in all of these different emotional ways. Um, I thought I was grieving, but actually I, I wasn't quite. Like I couldn't even allow myself to get to grief because I was so angry and disappointed in myself. It took me a long time and I needed a lot of support to get to a place where I realized like that is not course it's not what he would have wanted and that's not going to help me grieve um when my mom died somehow I and I was just it was devastating especially because it was early days of the pandemic and I could not be with her like I'd expected to be mm-hmm. um but I was emotionally in a place where I had learned how to grieve and grieve without punishing myself um and I had realized how essential that was to just be able to feel the sadness and the pain without directing it at myself. Um, And so that's kind of what I think of when I think about the title of the book. You know, nobody wants to go through grief, of course, but if you do the grief itself, it's, it's what you need to feel, um, you know, in order to be, to get to a place where you can be okay or be better. Um, So that's kind of what I found. Again, the title of the memoir is A Living Remedy. It documents the lives of Nicole Chung's parents. When Nicole Chung talks about the interconnections of grief with class and adoption. And Nicole's 2018 memoir, All You Can Ever Know, was actually about her birth parents. You also might know Nicole's work from the Atlantic Time and Slate, as she writes for lots of publications, including those. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to this caller from Redwood City. Next, hi, caller. You are on. Hi, Nicole. Um, I'm sorry for your loss, and I hope I don't cry. But I think your book is valuable. Um, It is a very big problem in this country. And I've had experience um, less to have insurance. I'm so sorry. I I think we may also be experiencing some interference on our line today, but uh, but can hear how this Redwood City caller is saying that your experience is valuable, and clearly it sounds like it really reflects her own experience, which underscores your whole point about how your parents' death, in your view, is an American death. And I'll be honest, Nicole, even when I was reading your book and reading about your experience of going to college and realizing your financial differences and so on, I had these moments when I was like, oh, my God, I feel like she's writing my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank you, in a way. I I think um, that means a lot to me because I think, I think memoir kind of justifies its existence by meeting readers, whoever you are, where you are, you know, um, I think also stories can, because they are so specific, they can help us consider these larger issues that 
or things we've experienced that we may be aware of or problems that we may not know how to confront. Um, I think they can provide new ways into these subjects. So if it helps some readers do that, or um, for you, if it reminds you of, of some of your own experiences, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be really grateful if it has that kind of impact. So can I tell you, there was something that really jumped out at me, and that is the fact that you spend a lot of time talking about how much your parents tried to protect you from the burdens of their financial issues, um, the way that the system was bearing down on them, the health care costs, and even the extent of their health issues as well. But you also talk a lot about, as a kid, protecting your parents from the racism you experienced as a Korean a Korean-American in a predominantly white um, town in Southern Oregon. And and just that inheriting of this mm-hmm. desire to protect, how have you thought about that? Oh, gosh. I mean, mostly how do I, like, not replicate it in, in the next generation? <laughs> um, but, no, I mean, it's very different, obviously. I think also with my parents, their finances, even some of their health struggles – Some of it was protecting me, absolutely. Some of it was being, um, I mean, I think sometimes they didn't honestly think it was my business, (laughs) especially when I was a kid. They could be really private about certain things. Um, And I think it was hard, especially for my mother, after my father died, like learning to have this new relationship with me. We were still in the process of trying to figure that out, right? Like I was trying to figure out, well, how do I support her? I'm her only child. My mother is a widow now. Like. And, and she was still very much thinking of our relationship as like parent child and, and like did never wanted to think of me as like a caregiver, even when that's what I became by necessity. And I think it was another thing I wanted to explore in this book is just the parent child relationship and what it's like when that dynamic shifts due to age, due to illness, like, you know, whatever the circumstances, I think it can be a really hard thing to negotiate. Um, but yes, I definitely did grow up feeling somewhat protective of them as well as as their adopted daughter. Um, I remember trying to kind of keep some of my um, some of my issues or some of my my thoughts or fears or worries as an adoptee from them. Um, And I do remember keeping the racism from them, although some of that was just me not having the language at the time to call it racism. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So it was it definitely did go both ways. (laughs) Yes, but under very different circumstances and periods. But I was struck by that a little bit, especially when we think about the traits we get from people that we don't necessarily have a blood relation from. Um, Let me go to Art in West Sacramento. Hi, Art. Hoping we can get you on. Hi, Hi, thanks for having me on. Nicole, you're so brave and insightful. I'm really grateful as a public health nurse, a nurse practitioner, and a registered nurse. And uh, I come from a deeply impoverished background, but I've been fortunate to have good opportunities. And, you know, your story, it resonates. Uh, My wife happens to be South Korean um, and was raised here after like uh, her teenage years. And, you know, I think about how you navigated this process and um, in talking to her and in reflecting on your story, you know, that the you're right to say that it's a common story. I've seen it so many times from farm workers who are paying for their own medical bills because the farm, uh, the insurance companies just don't take the trouble to really encourage them to apply for the workers' comp that caused the, the 
work-related injury, things, it, it goes on and on. And I just want to let you know that your story is uh, really valuable to healthcare providers and policymakers across uh, the landscape. Uh, the, we have a need for a better understanding on how to provide equitable coverage and care. And without stories like yours, it's really a challenge. You know, you know I guess my, my question is to you is, how do you not replicate that into the future? This whole it's very powerful um, the story, the idea that you don't want to recreate the kind of the systems that are, and yet we're a part of them. Like I recognize, I'm a part of this. Yeah. I, I don't always, I don't like it. I don't like some <laughs> of the stuff that I'm going through. And yeah. then to walk away from a pension, you know, you know, I can go on and on, but it's just, you know, it's yes. financially, it's a challenge. Well, well, Art, thank you, and and we're. We're almost out of time, but love Art's question about how do we not participate or perpetuate? I mean, it's hard. And that's the thing about systems is we are all kind of trapped in them. And um, it's hard not to feel complicit, right? I think I think so many things are important. I mean, the book isn't one about solutions, but I know everything I read about this in terms of like, I think we can do more in terms of studying and gathering data, knowing exactly who's being left behind and why, you know, where those gaps in coverage are. Um, I think there's a lot that could be done to simplify the process of accessing both healthcare and um, forms of public assistance and providing people with more help and guidance and doing away with so much means testing. Um, of course, we have to keep having these conversations and advocating and voting for better policies as as a previous caller said, policies that don't leave millions of people behind. Yeah. Um, so there's just so much that we can be doing. And it is hard, though, to feel as though, um, you know, we are within these systems that we don't have. Uh, well, Nicole, thanks for, for letting our listeners know that they're not alone, which is also the first step in realizing that you're affected by a system. And thank you for this book. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing this segment. Thank you, listeners. This is Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.